Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. Tonight's show is on Michael Collins on this, the centenary of his death at Bailnablaw 100 years ago. And we'll be debating his life, his death and his legacy. We'd love you to email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com or indeed your ideas about future shows that you'd like us to cover in the weeks and months ahead. Now, last week we found out about the assassination of Sir Henry Wilson and the start of the Irish Civil War and discussed the life and legacy of the Austrian Empress Maria Theresa. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud or our website newstalk.com. Tonight's show is on Michael Collins. Born in West Cork in 1890, Collins fought in the GPO during the 1916 Rising and after his release from prison became a leading figure in the IRB and the revolutionary movement. During the War of Independence, he was Director of Intelligence and played a critical role in undermining British efforts. He also served as Minister for Finance in the First Thal and helped secure crucial funding for the newly declared Republic. One of the negotiators of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which he believed was a crucial stepping stone on the way to complete freedom, he became president of the provisional government in 1922, but was unable to prevent the drift to civil war. On the 22nd of August 1922, Michael Collins was killed at Bailnablaw in Cork after his convoy was ambushed by anti-treaty forces. To many, Michael Collins is a hero and an icon, the man who won the war in the words of Arthur Griffith and the person who helped create the independent Irish state. To others, his legacy is more divisive and he is criticised by some for accepting something less than a 32-county republic. The Neil Jordan film of his life has further contributed to the mythology and as a result, the real Michael Collins has become obscured. And so in tonight's show, we want to explore the life, the death and the legacy of Michael Collins. And to help me do this, we've put together a brilliant panel of experts. First of all, I'll be talking to Dr. Anne Dolan of the Department of History at Trinity College Dublin and Dr. William Murphy of the Department of History and Geography at DCU. And they're the authors of a new book, Days in the Life, Reading the Michael Collins Diaries, 1918 to 1922, published by the Royal Irish Academy in collaboration with the National Archives. And they're also the authors authors of a wonderful biography, Michael Collins, The Man and the Revolution. After that, I'll be talking to our regular contributor to the show, Joe Connell, the great historian Joseph O'Connell, whose books include The Terror War and The Shadow War, Michael Collins and the Politics of Violence. And then to end the show, I'll be exploring the life and legacy with Helen Collins, who's a grandniece of Michael Collins, and Jamie Murphy, the general manager of the Michael Collins House Museum in Clonakilty. But we begin tonight's show with Dr. Anne Dolan and Dr. William Murphy. And can I begin with... A question about the mythology that is associated around Michael Collins, the man who won the war, according to Arthur Griffith. When you look at the life, though, it's it's sometimes necessary to separate the man from the myth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the myth in some ways is very, very difficult and very dangerous at times because it's, it's left us with an image of him. But is the, the man that won the war, the man in the uniform who's photographed quite a lot in July 1922. We see, tend to see him that way. We tend to think of him as being behind every single activity during the War of Independence. And that is not the case. Um, he really is someone who is much more comfortable with a pen and some ink and some paper and writing memos, writing lists, keeping account of things, being a networker, being a politician. And in many ways, it's that's not the only myth. I mean, there's the myth of him as the as the great modernizer, that the lost leader who would have done all sorts of things in, in independent Ireland. So, I mean, there's a number of myths about him, but certainly the, the myth of, of him as the man who won the war is, is still the strongest to this day. And do you think the assassination then contributes to that? It's a bit like JFK in the United States. People say, oh, if he had lived this and that, and that it's easy to project this on someone who's not around to, to prove you wrong. 
absolutely. I mean, he's frozen in time as a result of, of, of being lost so young. I mean, and in many respects, we can just reflect onto him, our different dissatisfactions with, I suppose, what independent Ireland became. Uh, he's very easy to, to, to mould into our, our own different uh, causes, if you like, uh, in a way that many of the, those who survived couldn't. They lived to, to act out what they what they believed and thought and, and what they had to do in very particular circumstances. Whereas he lives above us as the lost leader, as Mar- Marjorie Forrester called him back in 1971. And Anne, one thing that's always kind of confused me is that there's these different elements. There's the, the Minister for Finance, there's the, the figure crucial in the IRB, there's Director of Intelligence. There, there's all these different roles, the IRA, that that it's hard to work out exactly what are the most important roles and what what in what role he's directing what. Yeah, I mean, he is everywhere. And, and this is his key strength, really. He has a voracious appetite for work. And that's something that comes through in the diaries. Uh, he is constantly writing, constantly at work, happy to do jobs that other people don't want to do. And kind of doesn't leave many of them behind him. He keeps gathering roles and titles. Um, and manages to combine them all. Um, some better than others. Some he's more interested in others. But he's he's certainly that voracious appetite for work is is amazing. Um, and I think you're you're right. It's one of his key strengths. But at, at times you do feel, and particularly in certain memos, you know he's writing to people with this sense of I know how to do your job better than you do, which must have been appalling for for those people who had to work with him. Um, but he's you know he is very adept at gathering roles and and doing them very, very well. And you can kind of see that in the fact that some people who worked with him absolutely loved him, but other people really found that very difficult to take. And and is is that because he probably was too much in their face saying, do it this way or what are we, are we doing this? And that uh, he he really was, you know, it, it was it was a big personality and for some it was too big. Absolutely. I mean, if you if there's a there's a memo that we found from him, we don't know who he sent it to, but the idea that he sat down and just put on a piece of paper, you know, I told you so, uh, you know, that that must be a very difficult person to work with. Um, but at the same time, just his attention to detail is amazing, um, and I think you you kind of you can't fault it because it's so very much at the heart of of what he was trying to achieve. He's been trying to impose that level of work, I think, on other people as well. Um, and in some ways, for him, that must have been quite frustrating at times. And I mean, you can see it even in the diaries, the degree to which he doesn't seem to really ever take a day off. They're very rare. They tend to be revolve around brief illnesses. But this is someone who who is working constantly day and night. And Will, that is one of the impressive things about Michael Collins, that sheer workload that he took on between, say, 1918 and, and his death in 1922. And... Uh, and you see that in these working diaries, just how busy he was, just how involved he was. That uh, it, you know, it's you wouldn't have been able to sustain that working life uh, much beyond that. Uh, uh, yes, I mean it, it, he's extraordinarily busy throughout this period, uh, and you can see that in the diary entries. Um, the diary entries are, are are short. I mean, the the diaries we have really are what you might call working appointment books, uh, especially in 1918 and 1919. Um, in 1920, you can see him extremely busy with his priority at that time, which is the Dáil loan. And you could, there's an enormous amount of material on, in keeping track on that during those, uh, particularly first six months of 1920. And then 1921, 1922, the diaries we have really, they evolve into what you might call a daily to-do list. And they are long to-do lists. And you can see him keeping assiduously to those to-do lists, you know, crossing through each task that he has set himself each day. And if the task is incompleted, passing it on to the next day and making sure it gets completed uh, completed then. Um, and I think one of the things it's, that's been interesting about the conversation you have been having with Anne so far is this sense of the, the accumulated tasks and roles that he took on. Uh, but you can also see through the diaries that there are periods where he is more interested in particular things uh, above others. And there are sort of patterns of emphasis across his career. So in early 1918, for instance, you can see a very strong involvement in the politics in the by-elections of early 1918, in the building up of the Sinn Féin uh, party at that point. Uh, in sort of early 1919, you can see him very, very strenuously focusing on his role as director of organisation, the Irish Volunteers, and building up the networks he needs then to try and 
ensure that the volunteers develop and become a functioning, effective force. And then through 1920, for instance, there's this, you know, his, his role as Minister of Finance seems to take priority. And once you get into 1921 and 1922, you can see that state-building task that he has, which is emerging through first the negotiations uh, um, and then uh, beyond that, again, the sort of building of the new state as if it's emerging in the first, whatever, eight months he has that he survives uh, following the, you know, you know, the, the signing off on the treaty by the Dáil. So in a way, Will, you're getting a sense of his different and changing priorities over this period. Yeah, you, you certainly are. Uh, and you can see him, uh, you can see different people moving in and out through his life, I suppose, through the diaries as well. So, you know, the 1918 diaries is very much a Dublin world where you're seeing, uh, for instance, lots of the entries are abbreviations, which are numbers of houses and or buildings, and those buildings are associated with particular organisations that he's working with then, whether it be prisoner support organisations or Sinn Féin or IRB uh, centres. And then through 1921 and 22, you see new people, you know, that he's in a different world. He's in Downing Street, he's in Whitehall, he's meeting sort of celebrities in London. Uh, so his world has evolved quite to quite an extent from 1918 through to 1921 from sort of, you know, political operator inside a revolution, an important one, but, you know, uh, still perhaps not very well known by many people through to 1921, 22, where not only is he meeting celebrities, I suppose, but he has become a sort of celebrity revolutionary statesman himself at that point. And I suppose going through these working diaries, you get a different picture of what Michael Collins was doing than the Michael Collins of, say, the Neil Jordan film, which uh, presents viewers with a a, a more action-packed Michael Collins. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that fascinated me about them is the degree to which they sort of flesh him out as as a human being with with, with flaws and with with personal commitments and demands that, that many of us have. I mean, you can see his... His role within his own family changing as he becomes more well known. You can see him changing from someone who's you know, 27 at the beginning. He's going to Kayleigh's. He's going to dances. By the end of it, he's engaged. You know, he's he's at a very interesting stage of his his own life um, in in that age between 27 and 31. So there's that, there's that very mundane side to it too. That and the personal that is floating along in these diaries in the midst of these momentous events and these very particular moments. And I think that side of them is absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think it's a side we've we've kind of underestimated or we've, if you follow, as you say, the Neil Jordan line, we've been fascinated with with his love life and with Kitty Cairn and all the rest of it. But what you see, I, I think, as well as someone in the midst of a family and a, and a, and a family life that, that's changed and, and changed in a couple of cases quite dramatically because of the period itself and possibly because of him. If you think of it, you know, his brother loses his home. His, you know, his, he has to sort of step into a role in his, in one of his older sister's lives who has, she's just lost her husband. He takes on a, a role of support for her and her family. So his his life is changing in all sorts of other ways as well. And Dan, a hundred years on from from his death, how do you think we should assess his achievements and maybe uh, his failures as well? Like, how do we assess that legacy at this point in time? I think, you know, in many respects, because of the availability of new sources like the diaries, because we've been so lucky with our archives, with how, you know, effective they've been at, at bringing sources to the public. We can sort of look at them in a much more, I think, open-eyed way and much more realistic way, which doesn't necessarily take away from his achievements, but allows us to see him in a in a much fairer way. Um, I think what you, what's one of the striking things is that he's very much part of a wider machine. Um, we can't really separate him from all those organisations around him, from all the people who worked with him, in the way that we we used to. Um, I think we can't do that now that we have so many of those sources. Um, I think we 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 now have a chance to to sort of just see him much more realistically, um, and and maybe just see him for to some extent for what he was. He was very much a product of that revolution that produced many of his contemporaries. He believes many of the same things. He has many of their same prejudices, and you know, in in, in some respects, I think we we serve him best if we if we see him for flaws and all. 
And Anne, you've written previously about Bloody Sunday and you know the attack on the, uh, you know the the various assassinations on that day. How effective were they in crippling the British operation in Ireland? I mean, I think he he admitted, and amongst others, as others admitted, that that that, that wasn't the case. I mean, the very fact that they were planning other attacks towards the end of the War of Independence would suggest that that they weren't as effective as as some of the mythology around Bloody Sunday would would suggest. I mean, Bloody Sunday is fascinating in the diary in the sense that it's one of the places where he actually reflects on the use of violence. And it's only around the the deaths of of Dick McKee, um, really. And it's he doesn't talk about Croke Park, uh, but what he does mention is that that loss of Dick McKee in Pallor County, uh, which is quite striking because you you do get the feeling that you know he's he's really faced with the loss of someone who, who someone who's really close to him in in Dick McKee, but maybe also faced with the the, the thought of what might happen to me if I was caught too. Um, but you know, I, th- I think absolutely. You know, Bloody Sunday wasn't necessarily the, the 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 thing that it's been made into in in terms of the myths about the IRA success uh, in terms of crippling British intelligence. Will you've been working on thinking about uh, the world of Michael Collins from for a few years now? So I wonder how would you assess the legacy and what would you see as the is the is the great achievement uh, on the intelligence side? Is it setting up that framework for the new state as Minister for Finance and as President of the Provisional Government and so on? Is it the Anglo-Irish Treaty that he helped negotiate? How 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 do we view those achievements? Um. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, reflecting back on uh, you know what you've been talking about with Anne, and um, one of the things I suppose as a biographer you tend to do is I suppose you you want to try and get close to the individual and you want to try and put them in perspective. Uh, but with Collins, I think it's very difficult to try and put him in in perspective some of the time. I think in struggling to put Collins in perspective some of the time, I think the myth always. Uh, Collins will eat you up rather than you, you know, being managing to consume Collins or put him, put him in his proper place, although we've tried. Um, I think, you know, in terms of his legacy, there's no doubt, uh, I suppose, his crucial role in establishing the state is is absolutely, uh, you know, why why he why we remember him. Um, why he's remembered above and beyond the other people who established that state with him uh, is an, is another matter, and I think that's partly to do with his own capacity to self mythologize as well as that fact that you referred to earlier, his young death, which has allowed us to uh, write all sorts of things onto him. Um, one of the things I suppose we do have to—we're in the middle of thinking about the civil war quite a bit at the moment—and you've just been talking to Anne about violence and Bloody Sunday. But one of the things we still have to think about a little bit more and tease out uh, is to how much. To, to what extent Collins is responsible for uh, unleashing a particular kind of violence, albeit from behind a desk, which then continued on uh, right through the Civil War, once let loose, you know, uh, became very difficult to control. Uh, a lot of the people around him who were involved in uh, the War of Independence were responsible for some of the, you know, uh, I suppose, the, the worst atrocities or the least attractive aspects of the civil war. Um, and I suppose, again, it, it, trying to unravel how we think about that violence and the legacy of that violence and to what extent Collins is responsible for it uh, is, is, is important as well. And finally, Will, when you know people talk about leaders being perhaps a chairman or a chief, he seems to have been very much a chief and not always consulting, uh, doing his own initiatives. But even in terms of something like the pact election, that agreement with de Valera, which annoyed others like Arthur Griffith, is there a sense that in those final months in 1922 that Collins is very much doing his own thing? Um, I think Collins had become very used during the revolutionary period to be, to, you know, to being in control of the small, what were very often small organizations and to uh, being able to dictate to quite an extent to the small group of people who were working with him. Uh, it would be interesting to see how he would have adapted to becoming a politician who had to be, you know, to operate inside the norms of democratic politics. 
Uh, and in those final months, he certainly accumulated a lot of power to himself in the context of the civil war. Um, how he would have uh, adapted as a politician uh, a post-civil war, um, uh, what kind of politician he would have been, I think is, is a very open question. Um, you know, so he clearly was a very effective revolutionary. Uh, whether he would, uh, and that sense of him as a chief, you know, worked then. Uh, who, you know, uh, Cosgrave, who followed him, uh, in many ways may have been chosen to follow him precisely because he was different. He was the chairman and he brought a different set of skills to bear in the new context, which was the sort of building of the state and the creating of, uh, you know, a democratic civic society, uh, which was hopefully going to be you know, peaceful and stable. Well, my thanks to two absolutely brilliant historians for joining me tonight to talk to me about the life, the legacy, the mythology of Michael Collins, Dr. Anne Dolan of the Department of History at Trinity College Dublin, Dr. William Murphy of the Department of History and Geography at CCU. They are the authors of a new book published by the Royal Irish Academy in collaboration with the National Archives, Days in the Life, reading the Michael Collins Diaries, 1918 to 1922. And they're also the authors of a brilliant biography of Michael Collins, Michael Collins, The Man and the Revolution. We'll be back with more Talking History and more on the life and legacy of Michael Collins after this break. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History and I'm delighted to be joined by, well, someone who's been with the show for many, many years and he's much loved by our listeners, Joe Connell. Uh, you can uh, read his brilliant book's latest one, The Terror War, The Uncomfortable Reality of the War of Independence. Uh, lots more besides uh, The Shadow War and one Michael Collins, Dublin, 1916-22. to 22. So very much an expert on the revolutionary period and the revolutionary decade. Joe, you're very welcome back. Oh, Patrick, thank you very much. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here with you. Well, of course, this is the 100th uh, year anniversary of Michael Collins being killed at Bailnabla on the 22nd of August in 1922. So basically, there's a great deal of interest in what happened in Collins' death, of course, but also what happened really in the last several months of his life from the time the treaty was ratified in January of 1922 until he was killed. Okay, so maybe talk us through those months because uh, you have an election in June, you have uh, increasing divisions between those who are in favour of the treaty and against it. So what exactly was Collins doing during this period? Well, during the whole period, he was. He, I've told you before, we've talked before about the fact that he said he was a soldier, he was not a politician. And in my view, he is neither a soldier nor a politician. But he's, he, to me, he epitomizes the, the CEO of a modern uh, multinational corporation. Collins was making deals with everyone all the way through. If you take a look at, at the period between January and August, he had the two Collins-Craig packs in the North trying to make those work. He was trying to get the Constitution passed, as you said, which finally got voted on on the 16th of June. He was making deals with uh, Churchill in London. He was making deals actually with the members of the anti-treaty forces in the four courts. Collins was a wheeler dealer. He was always trying to make a deal with somebody, trying to make the good for the state. So during the whole period of time, I think it's important to take a look at what he did and how he did it. If I may just interject here something that, that the people have always said that I think it's very important for them to go back and take a look. When we look at Collins, when we look at any of these, we have to examine the, the things that we have believed for so many years that we know are true. Uh, Collins said, for example, that he signed his death warrant. He never said that. He never wrote that. And the fact of the matter is, it first appears in a book by uh, Lord Birkenhead's daughter in 1939. It first appears in Rex Taylor's book in 1958, and he quotes a John O'Kane. But we take a look at these things, and we've accepted them so much as gospel for so long, we really have to take a look at a lot of the things that we have believed and determine if there's really veracity to them, I think. So in terms of of that period, when you have things like, uh, you know, the seizing of the four courts, and you have the assassination of Sir Henry Wilson. You know, these are kind of trigger points for the Civil War. And and what was Collins's view of those events? They are trigger points. And it's very important to note that when the Four Courts was, was seized on the 14th of April, that was Holy Thursday in those days. So again, you look back at, is this a reflection of Easter Sunday? Is there somewhere in here where we have an Easter rising reprise? Uh, basically, Collins at that point was trying to make a deal with the anti-treaty forces as he always did. I mentioned earlier that he was talking to them. Roy O'Connor was one of the leaders there in the four courts. And Collins was getting a great deal of weapons to uh, to arm the 
Free State Army at that time from the British, but he was also trying to arm the IRA in the north of Ireland. He couldn't send the weapons that he got. He knew they would be traceable. So he would trade those weapons to Rory O'Connor with a proviso that Rory O'Connor would take the older weapons and send them north. It's very hard to understand when you have uh, two sides of a situation like this and they're trading weapons in order to arm a third party, but that's exactly what happened. You're right, on the 22nd of June, Field Marshal Wilson was killed in London, and there's always been a question of, was O'Connor the one who instigated that? Was Collins the one who instigated that? Was it done by Dunn and O'Sullivan, the, the two people who participated in it on their own bat? So here we have a situation where we go through and we take a look at Collins dealing with the four courts, uh, anti-treaty forces, being involved maybe in assassinating somebody in London. He was always on the edge of what was happening. And those are probably the two biggest trigger points for the immediate start of the Civil War then at the 28th of June. And Ronan McCreevy's excellent new book on Henry Wilson explores some of those theories about about the involvement in the assassination and, and how it led to the start of the Civil War. And it sounds from the way you're describing it that Collins is, you know, he's acting in not quite a legal constitutional way in this period. He's arming in, in Northern Ireland. He seems to be destabilising the new Northern Irish state that it looks like he's, he's playing it both ways. He's he's supporting the treaty, but he's also working to, to undermine uh, parts of it that he doesn't like. Oh, absolutely. Even during the, tr- the treaty debates, he went and talked to Kathleen Clark, who clearly was going to vote against the treaty, and he knew that. But he talked to her, and he simply said, I don't expect you to vote for the treaty. All I ask of you is that if it is passed, you let me work the treaty. Anyone who says they're going to work a treaty, work an agreement, work a, a contract, you know they're going to take that contract maybe as a foundation, but they're going to try and change it, amend it. And he did that. When he was trying to, he was not particularly involved in the actual writing of the Constitution, although he was ahead of the committee theoretically, but he was constantly trying to imb- imbue Republican ideas into the Constitution, which was then passed on the 16th of June. He was always trying to, to push the, the Republican ideal. That got turned down from Britain. Churchill once said, if you put all those ideas in the Constitution, you basically abnegated the, the treaty itself. So Collins was always trying to push the envelope, not only down here, he was trying to push the envelope in the north, trying to push the envelope by arming the forces in the north, and certainly trying to negotiate with the anti-treaty forces on both sides of the border. So talk to us then about uh, the decision then to to take action with the four courts. That was pretty much an ultimatum from the British? Well, it was. You, you come down to the to the last of the 20th, the 22nd, the 24th, the 27th of June of 1922. And Collins had been negotiating with him. But, but remember, the, there was a great deal of conflict inside the four courts as well. Do we attack? Do we attack the British? What do we do? So Collins had put off any kind of attack on the, on the four courts as long as he could. When, when uh, Wilson was killed on the 22nd, the British came down hard. They said Collins didn't have anything to do with it. As you mentioned, that that's, that's in some kind of a question. However, they said the Four Courts garrison was completely involved. And if, in fact, the Four Courts garrison was not thrown out, the British would do it. Churchill gave orders to General McCready, who still had plenty of troops in Dublin, to go ahead and attack the four courts. And they had a plan, including airplanes, including uh, artillery. And Collins was forced, in effect, to do that. But also, by the 27th of June, it was clear that the four courts garrison was going to attack in the north on their own. So Collins was really caught between a rock and a hard place. He knew that if he did not attack, he could not deal with the four courts garrison anymore. The British would, and that would start horrible problems. So the real triggering single event actually was the assassination of Wilson then on the 22nd of June. The Civil War breaks out then and I've heard that a lot of the photographs or most of the photographs that we have of Collins uh, in military uniform all come from this period, these few short months before he's killed. They do. He he had a uniform. If you, if you recall, going way, way back to before the Rising, he was part of the so-called Kimmage garrison. He had come over here from London where so many people have come and he worked for the, the Plunkett family there in Kimmage. And he used to often show up in the Kimmage garrison in his uniform, in his volunteer uniform, which really, really angered most of the rest of them who didn't have two pairs of pants to their name. So Collins did have uniforms, and from time to time he would appear. But you're absolutely correct. The, the, the photographs that we see are those of Collins 
after the Civil War, after the time when he appointed himself as commander-in-chief. And those are the ones that we think of. So when he says he was a soldier, not a politician, it's very easy to look at the books. It's very easy to look at the, at the photographs. It's very easy to look at the accounts and see him as a soldier. And I think he saw himself as a soldier, but I certainly wouldn't. You would see him more as a, an organizer, a, an intelligence man? I, I would see him as an administrator. Uh, again, I think that he had his fingers in so many pies. He's the, the minister for finance. He's the director of intelligence. He's got the ability to, to go every which way. And he, he had a very aggressive and abrasive, actually, personality in very many ways. If he saw something that he thought should be done, he would go ahead and try and do it. And then not only did he do that, but then when he went to the next cabinet meeting, he would kind of blow his own horn and trumpet the fact that he did so in front of maybe the cabinet minister whose who's brief that was. And, and, and so he, he created a great deal of, of antipathy along with a great deal of loyalty as well. So were there tensions then with the other, the other politicians, the other figures, government figures in those final few months, people like Griffith, for example? I think so. Griffith was was appalled at the at the Collins De Valera agreement, for for example, with regard to the uh, the election of June in 1922. He thought that that there was no need for that. As much of a Griffith was not a pacifist. People think think of him as a pacifist, but he was not. As much of a pro treaty man as he was, he thought at this time, if we're going to have to fight with the anti treaty forces, if there's going to be a civil war, let's do it now. Yeah, let's talk about that pact election because I've heard different views of that. You know, Halpin had a piece in the Irish Independent slating it at uh, the time of the anniversary. Other Others have defended it, saying it was an attempt to keep the national movement together and to and to prevent splintering. And uh, was it was it a, a way of cheating the public out of a vote on the treaty, given that there was a slate of candidates on the Sinn Féin ticket in proportion to how they had how they had already had the seats? I think it's Collins' way of, of wheeling and dealing. Remember, now, he it was actually Harry Boland who came up with this idea for the for this pact election, and he proposed it to Collins and De Valera. They went along with it. There was going to be a defined slate, and if, in fact, they were elected, the, the Doyle was going to be split according to the same percentages as they had gone into the election. So it was sort of a fixed election in a, in a way, if you will. It was not really election on the treaty uh, in the sense that that wasn't what the vote was. I think it was election on the part of the people thinking we want peace in some sort. We want the killing to stop. We don't want any more murdering. And that, uh, that, that would just end in it in that way. But remember, Collins was the one who broke that. He went down to Cork and said, now I'm here in front of you. I can tell you, vote for whom you want. And so the treaty pact actually was broken by Collins prior to the voting on the treaty. It certainly had an effect. I'm sure quite a few people voted according to the treaty pact, but Collins was the one who broke it. So here again, you have Collins acting on his own, acting really in a way that uh, was not attributable to his deals with anybody else. He always wanted to do what he thought was the best for Ireland, which I think all of them did. But Collins was very aggressive and abrasive in the way he did it. So what was his role then in July and August 1922? Was he, was he in, a, in a largely military role? Was he organizing the... The, the, the military campaign against the anti-treaty forces? Was he a dictator? I don't think he was up until you can take a look at July of, of 1922. I don't think that he was in, in acting as a dictator in that way. And when people talk about him as a dictator, they think of Joseph Stalin, they think of a tyrant, a despot, someone who's, who's, who's of that ilk. That's not the case. No, no, we can't call him a dictator like that. But on the 12th of July, he did resign his position, his political position, on the executive council, which we would call the cabinet these days. And he appointed himself as commander-in-chief. Then that night, he appointed uh, Richard Mulcahy as uh, chief of staff and Ono Duffy as assistant chief of staff. Two days later, he wrote to the uh, the cabinet and said, you know, it'd probably be best if you wrote me a letter actually confirming these appointments. So if you take a look at from July 12th until uh, the end, uh, the, when he was killed at the, at the ending part of August, he certainly was acting on his own without any uh, administrative or uh, assembly control and really in many ways without any cabinet control because he would write to the cabinet and say, I suggest you do this. And when the cabinet would write back, the cabinet would write back and say, what do you think about doing this? So it was a very deferential kind of relationship that Collins had. If we look at him as a dictator, as I say, Stalin, no. But if we take a look at the definition of a dictator, going back to Roman times where it was established, it was when the Senate would appoint someone with extraordinary powers in times of crisis. Sort of sounds like Collins, doesn't it? 
The other thing I think we have to look to, though, is all insurgents, all revolutionaries are ambivalent toward democracy. They really are. And, and so they kind of do things which, are, which they think are right and are necessary, but we wouldn't necessarily find in a, in a Jeffersonian book on democracy or, or any of the other writers on it. So Collins was acting in that way during the period between July and August in much more of a, of a command position than he had had before. So take us to Bail and Blaw then. Why was Collins in Cork and how did his road lead uh, on that uh, fateful day to Bail and Blaw? Well, remember the, the, the military inspection tour on which he found himself was the continuation of the tour that he started the 1st of August. Then when Griffith, was ki- uh, when Griffith died on the 12th of August, he came back to Dublin, spent a couple of days here. So this was really the continuation of that tour. Uh, Collins, uh, again, was acting as a Wheeler dealer. He went down to Cork. He went to some of the banks in Cork with Emmett Dalton because they knew that the, some funds had been lodged by the anti-treaty forces. They wanted to recover them. You go back, you would still, ha- would still see the Minister for Finance looking for the money, follow the money. And he had written to the, uh, the uh, cabinet at that time saying, you're going to come down here with some accountants. You're going to find us money, but wait until I get back to Dublin. We'll figure out how to do it. He also talked to others, Florence O'Donoghue, for example, saying, I know you're neutral here in the Civil War. What we want to do is try and find some accommodation for the anti-treaty forces. It does not look like there's any military chance for you to win here. Let's see what we can do. Then he went down on this military inspection from uh, from uh, Cork through Bailnablaw, abandoned down to Skipperine and back. He was going to meet others at that time in Cork, again, trying to negotiate, trying to find some way to, to bring it about. He goes to Bailnablaw. They ask for directions. They're recognized. It's a very poor military convoy from a from a soldierly point of view. And, but they knew that if, in fact, he was going to come back, he was going to come back that way because all the other roads had been interdicted. That evening, they set up an ambush, and they knew that he hadn't come back. Could he have found another route, they thought, perhaps, or just stay down there? So they were breaking down the ambush. So while there might have been 35 people during the day, there were only four to six people left. They decided when, the, when he came back, they were already breaking down the ambush. He had told uh, Dalton when, when they left uh, McCroom that if, if we run into trouble, we'll stop and fight. And as soon as they hit the ambush site, Dalton, who had some experience as, as a soldier, told the driver to drive like hell, but Collins said, no, stop, we'll fight them here. They did. Uh, he got out of the car, got out from behind shelter, was out of cover, and in fact was shot. Uh, I believe that that's the simplest version upon which most people uh, agree. Then there's there's a contest about was he lured to, to Cork or was the shot fired by a particular sniper. I think those are speculation. I think it was basically a military ambush. And it was getting dark. It was getting misty. I think that the, uh, the anti-treaty forces were retreating. And as retreating forces do, they, they fire a shot, retreat a little bit, fire a shot, retreat a little bit. And you could say it was a lucky or an unlucky shot which hit Collins, but quite probably any shot that hit anyone would have been lucky or unlucky at the time because he was the only casualty. Now, as you say, there's loads of different theories and and speculation about what happened, but there definitely does seem to be a view amongst historians that Collins was was foolish in in deciding to fight, that he should have followed Dalton's advice and just got the hell out of there. And, And perhaps also you see his lack of military experience and combat experience that he probably shouldn't have gone out into the open and uh, it, he didn't handle it the way uh, uh, as someone experienced of these combat situations would have handled it. Absolutely. All of those, all of the above. Uh, they should have gone straight through the ambush. When you set up an ambush site, all, of, all the uh, odds are in favor of the ambushers. They put you into a killing zone. They, you have to get out of that killing zone. He should never have been there in the first place. The uh, column that he was in was very small. It was not the kind of protection that he should have had. He should never have been going through there at all. When the first shot was fired, they should have driven like hell as Dalton required. They should have gotten out of there, should never stopped at all. They should have had more protection for him. He should never have been riding in an open car. He should have been riding perhaps in the armored car itself. You go through and you can tick all the boxes of what went wrong, and they ticked all the boxes and did every single thing wrong from a military point of view. So in terms of the aftermath then, what do you think was the immediate impact of his death and what do you think has been the legacy of Collins then in the 100 years since then? You know, I'm not sure there was there wasn't a realization of what the impact was on the anti-treaty forces. 
Ordinarily, if you kill a commanding general on the other side, that's a great benefit. But I think there were so many people who liked Collins. Uh, they just didn't like his view on the treaty that I'm not sure there was an immediate impact. As far as on the pro-treaty side, there was an immediate impact. The The uh, cabinet had prorogued parliament for, for so long, as I said to you. And when he was killed on the 22nd, the news got to the parliament on 23rd. On the 24th, in their very first meeting, they said, we will now have the parliament come back into effect on the 9th of September. So from that point of view, immediately upon Collins' death, they said, we will now have this parliament. We will go back into more of a democracy. And so he would have had problems anyway with, with Hogan, with Cosgrave, with Cahi. Those cabinet members would have been given him problems anyway. So I think the immediate effect was, was more on the pro-treaty side than actually on the anti-treaty side. And 100 years on, how do you think we should view Collins? Is he a lost leader who who might have achieved great things had he lived? Or should we just celebrate and remember what he did achieve in his lifetime? Uh, certainly he died too soon. Uh, but but the what-ifs are always... Uh that uh, what ifs are always great pub conversations, but we can kind of go nowhere with them. I think one thing that we can do is we can say he might have acted as a dictator during those uh, weeks between July and August, but he gave no indication he was going to be a dictator thereafter. So I think that we can get rid of that particular idea. He was a very young man. He was only 31 years old. And, and so basically, when you take a look at him at this time and you say, what would he have done? Would he have been satisfied to be in politics? Would he want to do something else? He was very open-minded about things throughout the world. So I think his, his, it's unfortunate. It's terribly unfortunate. He was a lost leader. He died much too young. And I just don't know where he would have gone. Do you think he's properly remembered today? I know there is the, the famously Neeson movie, but in terms of memorials, statues, monuments, or, or other ways of remembering figures, has he got the recognition he, he deserves? I think in many ways he has. And since the book started coming out in, in the 90s and in the 2000s, I think he's starting to get more and more recognition. I think there's becoming a greater uh, objective view of the War of Independence, of the, of the Civil War, what people did, why they did it, why they're on one side or the other. I think now people are starting to, to move into a little more nuanced view of what happened then and how the people responded. Remember, all these people in, in their own way acted the way they thought was right. I was suggesting to you that when Tom Berry unveiled the monument to Michael Collins in 1965 there at Sam's Cross, he started out by saying, uh, remember Tom Berry, of course, was on the anti-treaty side. He started out by saying there are members here from both sides and we should understand that, but we should also understand that people on both sides were doing what they thought was best for Ireland. And he stopped there. And I think there should be a full stop at the end of that. There's not a comma. There's not a but. There's not, yeah, but our side was better. We should simply recognize and reconcile with the other side. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to Joseph Connell tonight. Joe Connell, our great friend, author of The Terror War, The Uncomfortable Reality of the War of Independence and uh, lots of other great books, The Shadow War, as well as Michael Collins, Dublin, 1916 to 22. Joe, thanks so much for coming in tonight. Patrick, it's always my pleasure. Thank you. Back with more on the life and legacy of Michael Collins on this, the centenary of his death, right after this break. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Now, uh, to conclude the show tonight, I'm delighted to be joined by Helen Collins, a grandniece of Michael Collins, and Jamie Murphy, the general manager of Michael Collins House, the museum in Clonakilty. You're both very welcome to the show. Helen, can I begin with the image of Michael Collins today and the fact that, you know, 100 years on, his name, his image resonates so much. He is still an icon, not just in Ireland, but around the world. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Patrick, because when I was a kid in school, Michael Collins did not exist in the history books. Somehow he had been kind of lost in the interim period. And then obviously, um, because he's such an extraordinary personality in terms of his ability um, as a general and his ability as a freedom fighter and um, his ability as the manager of the national loan and so many other skills. I suppose he just couldn't be kept down. And he reemerged in a sense out of the shadows. Eh? And it all began to happen really back in kind of the, the 1990s. It was the centenary of his birth. Um, he was born in Woodfield, um, near Clannacilty. My dad, Liam Collins, was the last Collins born in Woodfield. 
and Dad took over um, the Woodfield farm, or it was given back to him actually through the generosity of the Coakley family, and he recovered it from the wilderness that it was and celebrated Michael Collins' 100th anniversary of his birth in 1990 with an extraordinary lineup of people. Um, not least the President of Ireland then, President Hillary, but his very, very special guests were Sheila de Valera and the British ambassador as his, he was absolutely determined to bring about a reconciliation in the divisions that had ensued um, in Ireland after the Civil War. But I think Michael Collins appeared out of the shadows in a sense at that time and that was shortly before um, Tim Pat Coogan's book was published and then, of course, Shortly after that, then the Michael Collins movie happened and that brought it to the, the public fore very much. And, and Helen, I wonder what does Woodfield mean for you compared to, say, Bale and Blaw? Because I've heard the Taoiseach Michael Martin talk about how Bale and Blaw can be much more, much more of a painful place for, for the relatives of Michael Collins and the descendants because that's the place where he was assassinated, whereas Woodfield was where he grew up and had those happy memories. That all emerged from a wonderful day that we had in Woodfield there last year in November when my, after Michael Collins' death, his diaries were returned to my grandfather, Johnny, and my grandfather passed them on to my dad, Liam Collins. And we as a family, uh, my siblings and I, uh, felt last year was the appropriate time for us to hand over the diaries to the state we did this in Woodfield. We handed them to Taoiseach Michal Martin. It was a, a, a lovely, lovely day. It was a, a place of love. And uh, unfortunately, Belna Blaw, of course, is a place of sadness. Sadness and death and obviously a very painful place for a lot of people because it was the end of Michael Collins's human life and the loss to Ireland of an extraordinary man. And that resulted in all sorts of divisions and political divides over the years. Very interesting. Jamie, can you tell us about maybe Michael Collins House, first of all, because it has this wonderful location on Emmett Square. So again, a connection with another uh, patriot from an earlier era and, and the importance of commemorating the life, the death, the legacy of Michael Collins. Yeah, so I, I suppose what we do at Michael Collins House, obviously we tell Collins' life story um, itself kind of throughout the house as well. Um, but I suppose more importantly for us is to kind of to make the history accessible to, to everybody and that anybody that comes in, regardless of their prior knowledge of Michael Collins, is going to, to gain something from their visit to the museum. A lot of what we focus on, um, I, I suppose, is the, the, the parts of, of Collins that people don't know really, and that's kind of where he came from, the, the area in which he grew up and kind of, I, I suppose, the, the, the general lease of the the area and kind of the history of the area and how that influenced Collins in his early years and then his his early life as well up until his, his time leaving for London to go over to London and that uh, so we focused an awful lot on that because I suppose it, it's something that's left out of an awful lot of biographies and a hugely important part of his life but of course then we obviously go through the the, the more known part of his story as well in his political and military years and that as well. And how do you think attitudes to Michael Collins have changed over the years, uh, Jamie? And do you think that uh, in this, the centenary of his death, we perhaps have a better understanding of his of his life and his contribution to the making of the Irish state? Yeah, I, I think so. And I suppose something that we're currently doing at the moment is doing a, a little bit of research on the Collins biographical legacy and kind of how, I suppose, the biographies of Collins have changed over the years and how knowledge of Collins has grown, um, and and I suppose with like when you kind of go back, you ha- you have the, the initial biographies like Pierce Beasley and um, Hayden Talbot, and that's going back in the, the 1920s, and by and large these are kind of largely hagiographical biographies that kind of paint Collins in, in a in a very I, I suppose positive light with without much kind of critique, um, and and then I suppose like like Helen was saying, Collins kind of disappears apart from a, a couple of biographies in the middle of the century, they're really kind of from, from Irish history for for a long time. And again, it's revived with, with Tim Pat Coogan's in, in the, the, the 80s and that. And, and I suppose Tim Pat Coogan and Peter Hart, and that, I, I think they, they, they carried out a little bit more in-depth research. But it was, I suppose, a little bit more critical of Collins as well. 
in his later years, he kind of he courted the media to a certain extent and used propaganda to his advantage hugely. And Helen, what do you think of the centenary commemoration of Michael Collins? Do you think that the state and different groups have, have got the balance right this year? I think it's time for us to leave the divisions behind us. And I really hope and believe, and that's why I wanted so badly for the Taoiseach and the Taunister to speak at uh, Bail Nablaw. And I think it paints a picture better than a million words. And uh, Helen, I might leave the final word to you maybe. And when we look at the legacy, is the legacy the Irish state? Is the legacy the freedoms that we enjoy today that he made possible, working with others, of course, but that he helped make possible through the War of Independence, through the treaty he helped negotiate, and then through that framework he put in place for the new Irish state? I think um, the the tragedy of Michael Collins' death, obviously, from a family perspective, and as sometimes family get lost when you're talking about a, a very public figure. I mean, obviously, the events around Michael Collins' life and the events around Michael Collins' death were a huge family tragedy uh, that affected, obviously, my family very deeply. But I think the biggest loss I feel as coming uh, generations later, two generations later, is that he would have, I have absolutely no doubt, created a different Ireland. I know my family, I know their personality, I know their determination, and I know their breadth of vision. You can see that he was an outward-looking man and uh, determined to place Ireland in in the context, in an international context. That did happen. That did happen eventually in Ireland, particularly with Sean Lamass. But I think it would have happened much sooner if Michael Collins had lived. I think that he was a forward-thinking man of great intelligence and from that perspective was a huge loss to the Irish nation. Okay, well, I think that's a wonderful note on which to end our show tonight on this, the centenary of the death of Michael Collins. Well, my thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, to Helen Collins, a grandniece of Michael Collins, Jamie Murphy, the general manager of the Michael Collins House Museum. We also talked to Dr. Anne Dolan and Dr. William Murphy, uh, Joe Connell, our regular contributor to the show. And I think we got a good uh, insight into the different aspects of Michael Collins, the man, the life, the death, the legacy and uh, maybe we're able to dispel some of the mythology as well. Well, that does bring us to the end, as I say, of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who produced tonight. Next week, we'll be finding out about the reconstruction of the archives destroyed 100 years ago at the start of the Irish Civil War and lots more shows coming up in the weeks ahead. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.